Welcome to this bonus episode of the Maine Science Podcast. I'm Kate Dickerson. This episode is an audio recording of our March 17, 2021 online forum, How Maine Companies Stepped Up, Round 2, Non-Biological Science and Engineering. This session covered some Maine companies that aren't working in the biological sciences field, but who have nonetheless put their expertise and efforts into addressing the COVID-19 pandemic. Peter Malachowski from Chinbro Corporation, Brian Donovan from AZ Corporation, a subsidiary of Chinbro, and Derek McKenney from Puritan Medical Products discussed their partnership, and Jesse Lupo from Mossy Ledge Spirits covered their pivot to producing hand sanitizer. Thanks to our online forum sponsors, the Bioscience Association of Maine, and media sponsor Maine Public for supporting the Maine Science Festival and these forums. One note, while we've edited for audio, if you'd like to get the full experience of the forum, you can find the video recording on the Maine Science Festival YouTube channel. All right, welcome. We're going to let a few more people jump on, and then we will start right away. And unlike everybody else out there, I have not mastered Zoom, so you'll, uh, <laughs> you'll see me jumping around here. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Kate Dickerson. I'm the founder and director of the Maine Science Festival. The Maine Science Festival, we like to say we bring Maine science to the public. We have often, or at least I personally, have often looked at Maine as Science Month because that's when we run our festival most years. Uh, so I like to take over the state, the March, sorry, the month of March, which is the world's longest month by far, and remind people about all the great science happening in Maine. This year, because of the pandemic, we are not able to run an online or an in-person festival. So we are doing this instead. Uh, so I'm delighted to have with us today some folks who are going to be able to talk about what they've done to step up to the pandemic, step up to address the pandemic in Maine in a way that many of us may not actually have even thought of. So we're going to start, this is a non-biological companies and so science and engineering companies. And my favorite part about this is We've got a gentleman who's, uh, who's doing work in what I would call the sciences, but most people might not because it's a distillery. So I'm really excited. That's Jesse Lupo, who you see on your screen. And then after Jesse gives us his overview, we're going to go to uh, Brian and Pete, and they're going to talk about what they've been doing to help uh, respond to the pandemic in a whole new way with manufacturing. Before I uh, hand it off to Jesse, I would uh, just like to give a huge thank you to our sponsors, the Bioscience Association of Maine and Maine Public, who's been our media sponsor. It's because of them that we're able to do this. And that is enough of me, Jesse, it is all yours. If you have questions and answers, please put them uh, either in the chat box or, or in the Q&A box and we will take them at the end. We're gonna have a big open question and answer session at the end of, the, of our presentations. So take it away, Jesse. Thank you, Kate. Appreciate you having us on board uh, for this. I find it to be very interesting how a lot of companies have uh, pivoted during the pandemic and how they ended up surviving through this. You know, we're no different. We're a very small company. We were only about two years into our journey as the pandemic hit and shut us completely down. Um, obviously, not willing to be, um, you know, on the failure list. We, we, you know, wanted to see what we could do to try to do things a little bit differently. And the only thing that we came up with out of the gate was to be able to do deliveries. And that's, you know, just bottle deliveries. And we knew that was not going to sustain. During which time we were also contacted by a lot of people, um, customers about, you know, who were in the health field, who were talking about how the shortage of, of uh, hand sanitizer was happening very quickly. 
not only did we realize that we could help, we, we also wanted to be very careful to make sure that the help that we gave was correct, you know, that we were legally able to do it and that it was going to be effective and it was going to be, you know, true to form. So during our quick search right out of the gate um, back in, I would say it was early March, um, we were we were looking into how to make hand sanitizer and realizing that 83.33% of the World Health Organization's recipe for hand sanitizer was made from ethanol. Well, that's kind of our business. So, you know, we wanted to do it, but we wanted to do it right. A lot of customers were mentioning about doing um, hand sanitizer with waste alcohol, but our waste alcohol is actually acetone and methanol, two things you should never consume or rub on your skin. So we, you know, we very quickly um, put that in place that that was not going to be an option. And, um, I had reached out to the CDC and they were all set at the time. They were, they had a plan in place. Well, the plan included the university of Maine and they reached out to us and all of the 19 distilleries in the state. And what they were looking for was any alcohol that they could get their hands on any ethanol that they could put their hands on had to be high proof though. Um, had to be actually 190 proof and not everybody's set up for that. So as a group, we started working together and we found that there was kind of a Portland hub. They were able to work and where I'm further north, we really weren't in the in the circle of that. So I reached out to some other distilleries because we've been building distillery equipment for the last dozen years as well with my other company, Trident Welding. And I reached out to some of the distilleries around the nation and said, hey, you know, we need alcohol and as much of it as we can get. Now, with that in mind, um, a couple of other distilleries and us reached out to our other resources and we started bringing alcohol in and, you know, producing as much as we could. Buck Farms donated, you know, grains to us. Portland Air Freight actually started out by shipping that for free. Uh, you know, so everybody leaned in and helped. And we really like seeing that, you know, that main drive, that main ethic and everybody, you know, pulling together. So as things went on, uh, basically, I, I had a really nice talk with our contact at the uh, University of Maine. And she said, listen, we'll take all the alcohol you can produce. And I said, how much do you need? Because I can reach out to my resources and pull more in. And she said, all you can get us. And I said, be careful what you wish for. We can bring you a lot of alcohol. So we actually helped them with somewhere in the neighborhood of about 3000 gallons of high proof ethanol. And we also, um, through our own means here, uh, distributed about 6,000 gallons during the entire pandemic to date, and we're still able to sell hand sanitizer. Of course, this pivot was away from our original business plan, which was making high-quality spirits. You know, we wanted to compete in a global market, or at least locally at, at first. So we started off making our own alcohol, and really that's where the dream was. So we were never in, intended to be a pharmaceutical um, what we intended to be was, you know, a beverage corporation. So um, by being able to make a beverage grade ethanol, we were able to use that. And the FDA allowed us to create hand sanitizer. They actually, you know, I say, I won't say lower the standards, but what they did do was allowed us certain things like uh, we skipped over the approval process of, uh, you know, having to file for and become a pharmaceutical. And, you know, we've had our own uh, governmental hurdles to cross as we get into the business of making alcohol. And, you know, we have 18 products now, which again, our, our business that was, it was rising, but it really, it hit the brakes, you know, and we, we weren't allowed to have any indoor seating during that time. We weren't allowed, you know, 
to have anybody on the premises. So as things went on, um, you know, the, the hand sanitizer truly saved our business while we were also supplying, we were donating, we were selling at, you know, at cost, or we were selling at a moderate cost at pre COVID pricing, if you will. And all of those things really resonated with our customers. And we have a very loyal customer base. Um, you know, we're also seeing that now as things are starting to open back up, you know, as we see the vaccines going out, as we see more people, you know, um, we're understanding more about the uh, the pandemic. And so, you know, in today's world right now, we're now, you know, making a lot more product. We're less focused on hand sanitizer, except for what we use in house and the sales that we're still able to make. As we push forward, we will, you know, eventually go out of hand sanitizer and we've been allowed allowed to do it until the state of emergency is off. Once the federal state of emergency is off, we have till the end of that calendar year to sell out of what we have for product. So we do still have hand sanitizer for sale at this point, but it's not our main focus. We did um, around November have to pick up in-house food. So we effectively became a class A lounge, able to have people in, have cocktails, have food, you know, and that, that is what's kept us uh, alive to date. Uh, very glad to be here. And we certainly thank our, you know, our main people and um, all of the people who've, you know, our state's been phenomenal to work with. I've got to say all of our authorities have a jurisdiction, have, you know, bent over backwards and been creative in ways to help keep us alive and keep us open. And that's, you know, that, that's a true testament to our main way. So I'm going to jump in really quickly. I know we said we would do questions after, but I also just realized because even though, like I said, I've been doing Zoom for almost a year now, I'm still not an expert. I totally forgot to introduce you. So um, <laughs> this is uh, Jesse Lupo from Mossy Ledge Spirits right here, in, uh, right nearby in Etna and also Trident Stills. And so I know your background originally was welding and biopharmaceutical welding, and you went from that to, to distillery and then realizing you could make your own spirits, which are lovingly displayed behind you. As, as an aside, my husband and I are, are can't wait to try the rum. Uh, so that's on our list. But I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I do want you to, if you don't mind, just diving a little bit more into the difference, if you can, the difference between the waste alcohol and what, what was allowed to be for sanitizer and how you and other distilleries figured out how to make that happen. That'd be great. Um, so, like I said, they, they originally reached out to us about using our waste alcohol so it wouldn't cost us money. Because, you know, the honest truth is yeah, one gallon of hand sanitizer would make 10 bottles of vodka. Now, I'm going to make considerably more money selling that as vodka as I, than I would, you know, at our price that we were selling the hand sanitizer at. Also, our waste alcohol, I'm part of any distilling process, um, some of the byproducts that are made is acetone in trace amounts and methanol in small amounts. And then there's a large amount of ethanol and, and other things. So for it to be able to be used as hand sanitizer, it had to be less than 200 parts per million. Uh, sorry, less than 400 parts per million. For the methanol well when we're making alcohol to drink we want zero parts per million we go to great lengths to make it that way being craft being small we're able to to make very good what we call heads cuts so the heads are the volatiles that's your your acetone and methanol and we get rid of that so once we get down into the ethanol part of it it's very labor intensive and it's very difficult to make high proof liquors in fact you have, a, have to have certain equipment to be able to do it um, you also have to have the knowledge to be able to do it and having been in distilling and, and selling equipment and teaching others how to do it, you know, we definitely were able to, to just segue right into that. So it was a very easy transition 
for us to take our vodka and make it into hand sanitizer. And of course, tert butyl is added to that. So if anybody's listening, please don't drink our hand sanitizer. It is not good to drink. It, it will make you, in, as, the, uh, as it's stated, intentionally ill. Not kill you, but uh, let's not play chances on that. Just buy the good stuff. It's okay. Great. Um, we're gonna we're gonna park that right now and hand it off to our other our other panelists. Um, Jesse, thank you for that, and we will I will have more questions for you. So don't go away. Just chew on all the different ways I can try to remember my chemistry and grill you. Um, I'll stand by. <laughs> I am I'm delighted to have kind of our a team up for the next session. Um, we've got uh, Pete Malakowski, Brian Donovan, and Derek McKenney. Uh, all on your screen there. Thank you, gentlemen. And the the coolest part for me, uh, for the three of you, uh, so Pete is with Chinbro. Uh, so he's all, I, as I look at it, all three of you are engineers from three different engineering schools, none of them from the engineering school I went to. So we'll have to have some type of round robin tournament next to see which one is, although I'm not an engineer, so I'm probably out right then. Um, so all three of you worked as a team to get a manufacturing facility up and, and going. So even though the facility itself was for biosciences, what you all accomplished was way beyond and way different than biosciences itself. It was, it was an engineering project. And I don't really want to go into it any more than that, except to say that the three of you, so we've got a, a heavy construction civil engineer with, with Pete. So please correct me if I've got that wrong. Brian is a mechanical engineer. And Derek, your director of engineering, um, also mechanical engineering. So we've got Clarkson University, the University of Maine, and uh, Penn State. Do I have that right? Penn State for the last one? Yep. So at least solidly the Northeast. I can live with that. Clarkson is probably the one I had the biggest issue with, mostly because I went to Rensselaer. So you and I can talk later about that. Um, <laughs> but I will hand it off to the, to the three of you to talk about how this partnership came about and for those folks who are listening what they accomplished in nine months is as far as i'm concerned almost unheard of um outside of really rare circumstances and and this was a really rare circumstance so i'll let you take it away well thank you kate I appreciate you having us uh and inviting us to be part of the, the webinar today it's uh, it's great to be here um Chimbro is extremely proud of our partnership with puritan here since uh, last April, uh, fighting the the pandemic, it's been a a great partnership, a lot of teamwork, and uh, we've despite all the challenges that we've we've faced together, it's we've we've tried to make it make it fun along the way as well. Uh, so today we're going to plan on giving you a recap of our first of of two production facilities that have been part of uh, Puritan's fast track expansion, fighting the the pandemic. So we're going to give you a little background on who Puritan is. Uh, their response to COVID, uh, the mission that we were, uh, Chinbro, AZ, and Puritan were tasked with, the scope of our project, uh, which is right here in Pittsfield, Maine, the success factors that we had, give you a, a few photos of the, the work in progress and after it was completed, and a rundown of the, the schedule of the project, and just a, a summary of the success factors and what went right and how we, how we did it. So with that, let Derek introduce himself and we'll go from there. I'm Derek McKenney, I'm the Director of Engineering for Puritan Medical. Um, it's an honor to be here today with Maine Science and Kate, thanks, uh, thanks for the opportunity. I'm Pete Malakowski as a Project Manager for the 129 North Main Street Project and hand it off to Brian here. Good afternoon guys, Brian Donovan, uh, Mechanical Engineer for AZ, which is a Chimbro company, 
We're located out of Connecticut and um, lead mechanical engineer for the design group. So we acted as kind of the design team project manager under Chimbro, working directly with Puritan. So just to give a little background on Puritan, um, we are based in Guilford, Maine. Um, we celebrated our 100th year anniversary um, in 2019. Originally, the company was founded in Saginaw, Michigan as a toothpick manufacturer in 1919. Um, they relocated to central Maine in the 1920s, actually, in search of uh, a better supply of white birch, which is the main wood used for um, toothpick production. Um, in the late 1940s, they began to manufacture medical products, tongue depressors, and uh, wood applicators. And today, we span seven market segments, and we're the largest swab manufacturer in the world. So it's, it's really been um, the last 10 years, the diagnostic market has grown radically for Puritan. As you've seen probably in the news, we're, we supply uh, foam swabs for about 90% of the rapid testing market, um, the Abbott test, all of the anterior nasal, not the brain tickling test, um, which people prefer. But we also um, are the highest manufacturer of nasal pharyngeal swabs as well, which is uh, a, current, a current ongoing project with Pete Bryan and I. So there's... Uh, there's no shortage of swab work at the moment. And so the COVID response at Puritan, um, it, it really started before, early early in the year, well before this project. So WHO declared a pandemic on March 11th. Shortly after that, on a Saturday, um, Admiral Brett Jawar reached out um, to Puritan and at that time was Assistant Secretary um, for Health in uh, the HHS. Um, so that following Monday, we pretty much had to do a complete pivot in our manufacturing operation, start to focus on 24-7 production of COVID swabs, both foam and flock. From that point forward, we were closely working with the government. Um, and in, on the uh, 29th of April, we were awarded $75.5 million of Department of Defense Title III funds um, to increase our foam swab capacity to 40 million swabs per month. And that was the start of the partnership with Chimbro and AZ um, to build our second facility. Um, on July 7th, we started production at that facility. Um, so that's, we went from project kickoff to, you know, substantial completion in a, in a production environment in really eight weeks um, from when the design started. I mean, it's an, it's an unbelievable, it just, it, it's hard to describe it, the amount of design work that had to be completed, let alone the construction and the fact that there was no time. We also built roughly 50 manufacturing lines for that facility at the same time. So um, there was a massive equipment build in parallel with um, the facility retrofit. Just as we started to get our second production facility online, conversations started around flock swab production. And in the middle of August, uh, we received 51.5 million in Department of Defense funds um, to increase our flock swab capacity to 50 million swabs per month. And then to, to finish the year off, um, we were awarded Inc. Magazine's Company of the Year, Best in Business, uh, Most Important Manufacturer in the World. So it's uh, 2020 was an amazing year for Puritan. So just a, a quick look here at the mission, and, and Pete, feel free to jump in. We started out um, with a commitment for 20 million foam swabs per month, um, retrofitting a facility, um, scaling existing technology, and at the bottom here of the slide, you can see a, a standard, uh, what we refer to as a 1506, which is an anterior nasal swab for rapid COVID testing. So what that what that mean? Uh, if you look at the the pictures here, starting uh, the upper upper left, you see this is a vacant 
manufacturing space here in Pittsfield. This is just down the road from Chimbro's corporate office. Uh, this is a former uh, United Technologies manufacturing building that shut down, I think it was about eight, ten, eight, ten years ago. Chimbro had been using this, this building just for storage of uh, tools and equipment. In the meantime, since we acquired this uh, property, and you can see the interior of the building as it kind of looked uh, back in April of last year, you know, you've got a, an old manufacturing floor, you know, a lot of uh, just miscellaneous piping and whatnot. It's pretty, pretty much just a shell of an old manufacturing facility. And you go down to the, uh, the lower two photos, you can see the, uh, the main entry here at 129 North Main Street um, with uh, the Puritan signage and whatnot. It's a, it's a great looking facility. And you can see the, the foam production area in the lower, lower right. This is a uh, uh, ISO 8 uh, clean space. This, was, uh, this photo, I think, was taken very close to the turnover to Puritan before they uh, officially started, started up operations. As Pete and Derek alluded to here, you know, we were staring at about 95,000 square feet of shelled building, and we had to get up and running in six to eight weeks. You know, 45,000 square feet of that is clean room. And uh, for Puritan's process, it's, they require 25 air changes of of clean air with UV treated light to sterilize that airstream and keep it moving. So within maybe about three to four days from the our initial meeting, we had to be ordering equipment and working on steel and platforms. So all these units you see on the roof, for example, just for reference, you know, a typical unit would take you eight to 10 weeks to get a custom unit, maybe 20 weeks. So we had these units in about two and a half weeks from the day we ordered them. But that design kind of goes completely in parallel with construction, which is more than a, a usual process. So, you know, about 35,000 in production, 15 and a half of office space down the front of the plan and, and the rest uh, in warehouse space. All that clean space you see now in this image here. So our team went up a couple days in and we laser scanned the existing building uh, to get existing conditions as fast as we could to the designers. And uh, with that laser scan, started outlining all Puritan's equipment layouts and product flow and production flow and trafficking and worked with Derek's team. Basically, on a daily basis, we had meetings with everyone involved, down to the fire protection contractor, all the way up to Derek's team, and everyone's listening to the same meeting. So we work together there. You see on the right of the plan, the finished warehouse, which was, you know, a training area was added to house about a hundred of their employees to bring them up to speed. Cause part of this effort was to, to onboard a lot of employees and train them in the operation as well, which Derek's team had to do. Yes. Yeah, so so, uh, factors. We've, we've alluded to some of these, but you know, what a, what a teamwork and collaboration. Uh, we had daily, multiple daily calls, as a team working through a lot of this with, uh, with Zoom. And, you know, Kate, you kind of alluded to it, but just the transition to Zoom and, and how doing business uh, with engineering and construction uh, and working with Puritan is just, an, it's, it was an incredible process. So really collaborative, very productive, a lot of late nights, weekends, 
you name it, to, to get this done and leveraging technology, as Brian pointed out, with the uh, laser scanning, any way that we could take advantage of technology to advance our, our schedule. We, uh, we instituted some lean construction uh, methods as well and relationships. Relationships were huge here. You know, Puritan and Chinbro uh, haven't done a lot of work previous to this uh, together that I'm aware of. Um, so we came into this, you know, as, as new new business partners. And um, and also, um, Chinbro had just recently acquired AZ Corporation uh, that Brian works for uh, a couple of years ago, uh, about a year and a half ago. So for me personally, I had never worked with Brian, uh, hadn't worked with Derek. You know, our teams were really just, you know, thrown together and tasked with, with you know, collaborating to create the design, accommodate all the different uh, aspects of production for uh, productivity for, for Derek's team, um, and make this work from a constructability and uh, scheduling perspective, which is really, at, at times, uh, when we first started out, I'd, I'd be lying to you if I didn't tell you that it seemed like it was an insurmountable challenge. But we all work together, and it's, it's really a testament to what people here in the state of Maine and around the country are capable of doing when we put our best foot forward and, and work together. In the project here, we had uh, in, in eight weeks, we had over 700 individuals work on the, on the project. So that includes, you know, construction people from uh, Chinbro and uh, AZ, as well as our, our third organization within the Chinbro umbrella, Starcon. Uh, we had a couple of their folks that were on site helping manage our night shift uh, and a lot of different subcontractor partners as well as other consultants. Uh, we had architects, different engineers locally, and uh, also in uh, the Boston area that helped out quite a bit. And, you know, really just anything, any lever that we could pull to make this go, uh, we did, and everybody worked together. I just can't stress that enough. I, people working together can accomplish incredible things. No, on that note, you know, what the list that Pete's shown here, um, you know, the number of subcontractors all around from the, the state of Maine that just the material strap that this put on the, the area to, to come up with them out enough drywall in a certain amount of time. You know, we might, we, we had three drywall subcontractors all working together. You know, so we had multitude of nuances that you wouldn't see on a normal job. A lot of different companies working together that are normally competitors. Um, but everyone kind of rallied around that mission of, you know, this is a, a project that was critical to the country and, and had to get done. Planning and problem solving here is in, incredible. Uh, you know, Brian's team, every time we, uh, we had a meeting in the morning, it seemed like we had a different, uh, different challenge to, to solve. Um, there's a lot of different code requirements related to design work. And, you know, when you start getting into an old building like this, you just don't know what you're going to, going to find. Maybe Brian, you can uh, elaborate on that a bit with some of these photos. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, when we sat down on April 20th with that first look at the building, it was, all right, we could quickly build a clean room within a building and just defer the building because we don't have time. But, you know, when you get all these, all the people involved and, and looking at it, we just, you know, we had to shift and move. Uh, we found different, different levels of, uh, you know, abatement that we had to do and walls that just made the decision that we had to, you know, replace the exterior skin. We found a hundred foot boiler stack that was 
going to be a liability for Puritan down the road. And we kept it on the list. And if we could get to it, which we ended up, we were able to take it down. You know, we always had the, the immediate get everyone up and running by July 1st. But when we're done with this, how can we be proud of what, what we leave? Um, so we did shift gears a lot. And, and through working directly with Chimbro every morning, their constructability feedback on our design was critical. You know, we learned about you know, how best to lay out ductwork and stack it so that the trades can, can get in and out at the right times so and we don't create a roadblock for ourselves. And it was really pretty unique in the amount of feedback you get that's, that was getting integrated. You know, we would be drawing ductwork and it was getting installed the next day. Pretty amazing. So part of what we had to do was also accept and receive Puritan's equipment that was being built in parallel uh, and, and get them up and running and validating as we build ourselves out of the space. So what Pete's got here, we, we kind of zoned this, the entire build out, and we use this to inform the design layout of our systems so that one system wouldn't cross a boundary so that we could really turn over a space and keep working our way out. So rather than a, you know, an engineering set that you just designed for optimum design, you know, we had to also design for how are we going to turn this over in a way that works for Puritan? We were able to do that and also work our way out of the space to let different trades get ahead of the others so that those 700 people weren't all standing in the same zone. Yeah, we've talked about coordination with our uh, daily calls with uh, Derek te- Derek's team, but we also had uh, pull planning uh, sessions with with our all of our subcontractors and our key uh, managers on site. Um, so pull planning is a, a lean construction technique where basically you start a schedule at the end and work your way backwards to where you currently are. And, you know, basically every day we're shuffling around different constraints, roadblocks that we're running into so that we can keep everybody steered and headed in the right direction to to get to the finish line on July 1st, which was uh, the line in the sand that we had, we had been thrown down and, uh, you know, headed towards. And as part of that, we had to set up our night shift operations. We had a, a crew about a third of the size of the, the day shift crew working on night shift, and they really focused on sting missions that could keep the job on schedule. Wherever the, the hot fire was, whether it was you know framing or uh, structural work, electrical, you name it, we, we stared that crew uh, towards those hot hot areas so that the, the next shift we kept the ball going down the, down the field. Uh, headed to the end zone. So hitting on the technology used a bit, one of the first things and being a, de- a design group within a construction company, you know, we we leverage our technology to, to get our existing conditions as accurate as we can when we're drawing, drawing existing structures to live within so that we don't come into a, uh, a clash in uh, coordination when we need to go install things. So we did start designing off old drawings because we had to, but in parallel, we had the team go up and laser scan the building. And what you see there is it takes, you know, pixels down to as accurate as a hundredth of an inch of the whole building. We did interior and exterior, and our team was able to take that and create an existing conditions model within a couple of days that the architects could work within and be confident that their dimensions were accurate. You know, we found anything from the roof slope was, you know, a foot different than plan showed that would have really driven uh, issues that we couldn't have afforded. So 
This is a technique we've used on a number of projects, but it was definitely critical here. We also found after scanning it, the building was about 10 feet shorter in length in the north direction than we had thought. So we had to pivot a bit a couple weeks in. But this also helped our, during COVID, you know, this was in the month of April, March, uh, right when everyone's locked down working from home. This was a way that we could get the, the designers the info they needed with also keeping a light footprint on site until we got our safety measures in place. So we got a, a, a few photos of, of Derek's new new home here. We get the, the main entry, and then this lower lower photo is the uh, the gowning gowning area, right right as uh, Puritan Folk Center, the the production space. And all those airlock doors you see there, you know, everything's pressure related. So you have to keep a positive pressure to keep keep clean air in the clean room and keep our contaminated air out. So all that. We've installed a full building management system here to track that stuff for Puritan. You see there uh, on the top left, the new entry vestibule and, and lobby for the receptionist and the training room off the side and the, the break room for the shift, shift breaks and lunch. And then here's our, our dunnage platforms and rooftop units. You know, being an existing structure in Maine, if you put a, a big unit right on the roof deck, you create a snow drift that this structure couldn't have taken and we didn't have time to reinforce the structure below. So we ended up having a custom design and, and Chimbro fabricated these roof platforms to allow for the snow to drift and not impede those loads on the structure. Very unique thing that you wouldn't do in a normal, normal job, but it, it was the best way to get this done and keep things in longevity of equipment up on those platforms. So it's just a, a recap of the timeline here, but really the scope that we we fully gutted this building, uh, including the exterior. You saw the the walls completely taken down around the, the perimeter of the building. We demoed that old uh, stack from uh, the old woolen mill. Uh, this this location here in Pittsfield dates back to the 1850s with a history of manufacturing. Talked about Brian's air handling units. We've uh, installed a 11,000 gallon. Uh, propane tank for heating the uh, facility. Uh, we've got uh, 260 horsepower of compressed air, two new electrical services, and there's a backup generator for uh, life safety measures in the event uh, power is uh, power goes out. And bottom line, we uh, we got this work done here in in two months, uh, just about two months. It was really a, an incredible team effort again, and uh, very proud of. Again, the partnership with Puritan and uh, the success that we had as a, a team between Chimbro AZ and, and all of our main and other uh, partners here in the project. Just to summarize, from July 1, you know, we, we had the startup, and Derek can maybe speak a little to more how that, I think you're exceeding your goals in production of that $20 million in there. Um, but overall, it, it was pretty incredible to watch, you know, how everyone saw the end goal in sight, you know, with regards to getting these buildings up and running so that we could get swabs out to try to get life back as normal here. And hopefully we're seeing that come soon, but it, it, it was a pretty incredible job to be a part of a lot of teamwork. It really exposed, you know, what a lot of these companies can do together. I think we're seeing that on some upcoming jobs, some better partnerships out of this. So, and on top of that, I think you've created about, is it 600 new jobs in Maine, Derek? 
Actually, now, yeah, we're 700 new jobs from the two facilities here. So uh, we're, we're well ahead of um, our goals with foam swab production. Um, right now, we're at about 13 million a week, 13 to 14 million a week. Um, we're bringing online some new automation. We started out with a 20 million demand. It went to 40, and then we were at 100 million, you know, before July 1st. So we're still responding to the market need. But all in all, uh, a great success and really shows what a, a team of motivated individuals can accomplish. Yes, with that, Kate, that's that's our uh, presentation for the group. And appreciate any any questions or feedback anybody has. I, I have so many questions for all of you, uh, but the, the first one I'll make is, are all of you actually as well rested as you look? Because I find that stunning. You, um, we had a, we had talks last week from Abbott and IDEX, and um, and they all had a very similar story about it's the people, it's the people, it's the people, and it's the time. But they uh, they were, I would say, pretty exhausted, and and I'm surprised at how little, how not tired you all look. So congratulations on whatever makeup you've done with that. Um, my actual question <laughs> is. What what is a normal what's what's normal for putting this together? So so Jesse, I realize normal for you is not hand sanitizer, but normal for you is a new line of spirits or a new line of, of a new product. How what was the change in the in the turnaround time for you? And then for the I'm just gonna call you the Chinbro Puritan folks, what is what is your normal take if you had if you had a, a way that, to transfer this facility or to make over this facility, what would it usually take? And then we'll circle back to more questions. And again, if anybody else has questions, please jump in. Otherwise you're gonna hear an awful lot of my voice. I'm gonna monopolize the time here. Go ahead, Jesse. So our normal um, has been the development of our product line. You know, we started off with just a few products and um, over time we introduced new flavors. We're working on marketing. We're, you know, we're small, so we don't have a lot of budget. We, uh, it forces us to, you know, we've, we have shaved down from a nine day work week down to just a seven day, um, seven to eight, depending on the week. Um, there are more days in the week than people know. You know, we, we don't work 40 hours. We haven't seen a 40 hour week in a very long time. We have got a vacation plan which is great you know and that's kind of getting back to normal you know our normal previously um you know we'd work four tents in, in the production side and then we'd work a couple of evenings on the weekend you know on on the uh, distillery tasting room side and then you know at different times we have some um uh, part-time employees because there's only three of us here and there's only ever been three of us here that are full-time that's me my wife and my father-in-law so for a three-person business to run like we are it's it's a lot said you know we we all wear many hats as you know these folks do as well and um you know right now we we have our 19th flavor coming out which we're working with a local apple orchard and you know we've made an apple brandy that's going to be coming out um conan's apple orchard um had it had an extra apple cider this year so we were able to you know finally realize and do the apple brandy but our, our long line of products you know, I can make a lot, but if I can't sell it, and that's really what we've pivoted over on our personal side of the business, is trying to grow our business in the state of Maine and in just beyond, you know, in our in our neighboring markets. You know, we've we've gone down to Massachusetts recently and we're trying to expand our market in that direction because we can't grow unless we've got the capital. We don't have the capital unless we grow. It's really quite a catch twenty-two for us. But you know, being of, of the main spirit, we'll we're too dumb to quit and we're we work too hard to make up for it, you know. 
we, we do love what we do. That's why we get into this business. I've always been passionate about liquor and making it. Um, it. I find it to be interesting. I did not do well in school, actually did not graduate. I went back for my GED. So come from a, a very hard working and not very smart working. But, um, you know, we've kind of turned that around. And uh, like I said, as a family business, you know, I'd love to, to see my children, you know, eventually take this over and, you know, this just to remain a business that, that continues to grow and employ more people as we go. And uh, the, the Puritan Chinbro team, how long would it normally, that I, I still short, I said eight months, but two months is really what it was. What's, what would be the norm for what you accomplished? I'm going to say probably about eight, 18 months. Brian, I don't know if you want to. Six to eight months would be a design schedule that would be pretty aggressive under typical scenario for that that scale of a job, um, especially involving so much structural work and a lot of asbestos and, and some risky work that how risk mitigation was key with all the people we had involved. So on the design, it's six to eight months. Construction overall could probably be, what, eight, two years, Pete, year and a half. Yeah, it, it, it really, uh, it's, it's tough to say, but I'd, I'd say, yeah, 18 months, 18 to 24 months wouldn't be out of the, the realm of possibility. You know, we were we were very fortunate on a lot of levels with uh, cooperation from some longstanding relationships here in, in Pittsfield as well with the, the town. They were very accommodating with when we brought them uh, progress drawings and whatnot to keep keep them informed as to what was going on. And they understood the mission of what we were trying to accomplish. And, you know, uh, collaborative just on so many fronts, you know, Central Maine Power helped out with, with turning around uh, transformers and electrical infrastructure on, you know, work that on their, their side of things, you know, ordinarily would have taken, you know, months as well. Uh, so private-public partnerships, you know, galore here, just incredible teamwork. I, I know I'm sounding like a broken record at this point, so... And I think from Puritan's side, just to bring manufacturing online and build equipment, I mean, that's... That's a 12-month project from from the facility being done. I mean, it's yeah, the a realistic timeline is tack that on to the end of construction. I mean, you're 18 to 36 months. I said you don't look nearly tired enough. Um, so we have a question from the audience. Both efforts are incredibly impressive. Thanks so much for your service. Jesse touched on it a bit, but how were the material supply chains during both of these projects? When we were going into the pandemic, overseas trade seemed to be in a period of big change for the U.S. How did that impact the project? I'll let whoever wants to start, start. I'll fire away on my side. I think it's a pretty simple answer. One of the things, obviously, the first major hurdle for us was ethanol production and, and at high proof. So really, it came down to who had the equipment, how could we work together. We had uh, breweries donating waste beer. So that ethanol being just one of the four parts, um, it had to be denatured for it to be legally used um, as hand sanitizer. Otherwise, we would have been liable for the federal taxes on that spirit, which is about $13 a gallon. So you could imagine how that would be a serious, you know, pass on to the consumers at that point. Um, the other major hurdles that we ran into, and this is where we had to really dig deep and reach out in the resources, was um, our hydrogen peroxide that we needed um, because everybody started making hand sanitizer locally because it wasn't coming in from overseas. Um, the, the H2O2, the, hand, the uh, hydrogen peroxide, also the glycerol. 
a showstopper for most people. It, it had to be in there. That's to keep it from drying out your hands, you know, for the hand sanitizer. Um, the other thing that became a, a huge issue uh, once we got past these was packaging containers. You know, we, we couldn't buy for any money. You could not buy these things. I would reach out to our resources where we could have got it from. And they said, well, no, if you haven't already bought, you know, 10,000 of these a month, you can't get these because the people that were buying them could get them. So we really had to create new new ways of doing that. And the university helped us out. Um, Poland Springs, they, they donated about 10,000 of our small water bottles that they printed out in blue. You know, they actually slammed out a, a bunch of these with a blue tint to them and a special cover that we could label then with our FDA labels. And Oakhurst of Maine, uh, I reached out to them and asked if I could buy gallon jugs from them. And they, and they said, no, but we'll donate them. They donated about 10,000 of the gallon jugs. And that's that made it possible for us to put it out to our police departments, our fire departments, be able to get it into the CDC so that they can distribute it out amongst the hospitals and allocate it at that range. Then we work from the bottom up. So, you know, again, we needed a lot of containers to be able to put it out in smaller quantities. And the big giant facility, how did you guys handle the, uh, the material supply chains? The big thing for us was we, uh, we worked with Brian's team uh, to identify a long weed list for all of our materials and equipment. So that was the, the early planning up front, identifying those items. And then Puritan was able to uh, help us out with a, um, the project was rated through the Department of Defense. Uh, so we had a letter that helped us with all of our suppliers to, you know, basically cut in line, if you will. Um, we were able to get ahead of non-DOD related projects to help fight the pandemic. So really identifying the, the longest lead items and going out uh, with our purchasing group to, to buy those items out as quickly as possible as soon as the design was uh, complete and work with the vendors, you know, turning around. Brian's team worked with, uh, you know, like the electrical switchgear, for example, uh, turning around shop drawings and timely engineering reviews, you know, taking that process, which ordinarily may take weeks, uh, turning that from you know, sending a, uh, getting a drawing submittal and, and turning that around within a matter of hours. Yeah, I'd say a big part of that with Derek's team, you know, within days we had, you know, Derek and the entire Puritan team was part of the design team as opposed to the owner you're working with. So we were getting live decisions on meetings like, you know, we need to order this equipment today. Let's focus on that equipment. And so as everyone was able to kind of identify those listed items, prioritize them and get them on order and then we can focus on the non-critical tasks yeah the department of defense rating helped us tremendously with, with just being able to take priority w without that i think we especially on the equipment side we would have run into some more hurdles but with the priority rating um we were able to get to the front of the line so one other question i have and I, I'm assuming none of you would, would like to have to do this exactly the same way again, because it's not sustainable, right? I mean, it's, it's crazy to think that you, you, you take an 18 to two month, two year job and put it into two months is nuts. But what of what you all did, would you like to continue moving forward with? Is there some, are there things that you got from this? Maybe it's the partnerships, maybe it's the ability to get everybody to make this. Are there parts of this that you would like to keep as we move forward? Anybody can jump in and you can say, absolutely not. You want to go back to what it was before. I, I think the commu the open communication links um, and, and the decision-making abilities, the, the, the team structure we had 
is absolutely something we'd love to replicate moving forward. I mean, we're, we're getting pretty good now at these short projects, you know, as the yeah. uh, one is wrapping up. On our side of things, um, the one thing that I saw more than anything, and I think it really resonates, especially in Maine, but also across the country, is the shop local movement that we've seen and so many people that are supporting our small businesses, um, something that we've always really done as to, to every extent that we can. We've seen our support for everything that we've been doing has just been astronomical. It's very, very humbling. And I would love to see that, you know, going forward for people to continue to support the smaller, you know, mom and pops businesses that actually, you know, do serve to our neighborhoods and schools and et cetera. Got another question from the audience. Usually getting a contract can take a long time, far longer than the two months it took you to actually build this. Why did Puritan approach Chinbro? And then how did Chinbro and Easy so quickly incorporate the work and move forward? So, um, I don't know, Pete, when did we actually have the contract in place? After the project was done? I, 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 think, it, I think it was probably three, four weeks in to construction. Yeah, it was. At least. It was it was it was definitely well into the project. Um, we um, we ended up so Puritan Chimber relationship started from uh, actually when we were looking for a building um, and when we the site that um, Chimbro owned that was really how the initial conversation started um, in site selection and just seeing available facility and from there the relationship evolved very very quickly. We've become great partners. One one thing to add there, you know, on in the waiting time for a contract, like we've all been able to work out some early work release with that critical list of either actions or like something like the laser scanning that would hold us up weeks of design. You know, Puritan's been great about allowing early releases of certain scopes while we hammer out the rest of that. So we work through a lot of early works items up front. And Derek, I'm just curious uh, to bring this, wrap this up a little bit. You said at one point it was a hundred million per week that you were asked to do or filled it. Like what's the normal, what were you doing before all of this? What are you doing now? And can you project out what, how, how much more you'll be doing going yeah, forward? So, so we started out, um, we were somewhere in the 20 million per month range. We were asked to double that capacity. Um, so, Shortly thereafter, we were asked to double, um, you know, our first initial uh, 20 million. So that set the goal at 40 million. Um, and that was in April, May timeframe. Since then, the market need has evolved um, to well in excess of 100 million per month. Home so I, I see the market continuing to grow. I, I don't believe rapid testing um, is going anywhere for some time. Our nasal pharyngeal market, we were roughly to five million per month and and that's projecting out to around 50 million per month going forward so um the volumes uh aren't going down moving forward well the uh the you saying that the rapid testing isn't going to go down for any time is a perfect segue to allow me to share what we have coming up so before i let you all go um we have got uh, next week, we've got uh, vaccine distribution and public health, and part of that public health conversation is going to include testing as, as a method of how we 
have been addressing the pandemic, but also moving forward. I'm, I'm really excited to have both Noah Nesson and, and Luann Ballesteros uh, representing vaccine distribution and public health. And then we have a bonus episode, a bonus episode, a bonus <laughs> session at the end of the month where Elizabeth Marnack is gonna talk about all the vaccines that are out there and explain the science behind them and how they work. I've actually heard her speak twice now since February and she updates it as the vaccines come online. It's a really extraordinarily helpful overview of the science and also what to expect. So I'm, I'm really excited to have that. So that was a little bit of a plug, Derek. I really appreciate you mentioning the swabs and the testing going forward because I think rapid testing is here to stay for a long time for all sorts of things. I think we've seen the value of it, especially when we haven't had it. So I'm happy to talk about it. We're going to, unless there's any other questions that anyone wants to throw in there, that's like a quick 10 second. I think we're going to wrap this up. I am deeply, deeply grateful, not just for your time, but for all of the work that you've been doing on this. Um, I know I joke that you look well rested. I'm, I'm quite sure that's a facade. I think the work that you have done has just been extraordinary. I have, uh, I have been a fan of engineers since I was at an engineering school and couldn't figure out what on earth everybody was doing until I was a sophomore. So it's been, it's been a joy to talk to you and see your faces light up when you talk about this. But not only that, to realize that what you've done has just been a, a huge help, not just for our state, but for the country. And Jesse, to have someone who, who is a self, uh, what would you say, self-acknowledged, not great student, really extraordinary, <laughs> uh, curious person to, to go on and, and, and really pivot in an area that um, I'm, I'm going to hazard a guess at, you know, 20 years ago, having something like glycerol or glycerine, I can't even remember what it was, roll off your tongue like that was not what you expected. Um, no. <laughs> I do appreciate your work. I hope, I hope people out there appreciate it. We will get this up on YouTube at some point in the next couple of weeks. And thank you so much for your time. And you're all forewarned that once we get to meet again in person, I'm going to rope you in so we can talk about this again and some other stuff. So thank you so much. Thank you all. Thank you. Appreciate it. The Maine Science Festival has received sponsorship support for this bonus Maine Science Podcast Forum episode from the Bioscience Association of Maine and Maine Public. The Maine Science Podcast was recorded at Discovery Studios at the Maine Discovery Museum in Bangor, Maine. The Maine Science Podcast is produced and edited by me, Kate Dickerson. I received production support from Miranda Bouchard and social media support from Next Media. The variation on the Discover Maine theme was composed and performed by Nick Parker. <laughs>